that better? That's much That's, better. Yes, much better. Okay, cool. I didn't actually record anything, and I don't know where it went, so I couldn't find it. But this is better. We're not echoing. So that's good. Right. Exactly. Um, how has your week been? <laughs> it's been a shit show. How's the year's been? <laughs> same. Very much the same. Ugh. Addicts and gay people, I'm telling you, they're the absolute worst people in the world. No, I love my clients, and I love them. <laughs> uh, more power. I mean, I don't mind addicts as much as I mind gay people. <laughs> as a gay man. All right, so should we go ahead and just do this cold open real quick? Okay, we can do that. All right. Are you, are you going to do all of it? No, you have a line there. Where? You say, and I'm also your host, Annie. Where does it say that? I say hello and welcome. I am your host, Alan. Then you say, and I'm also your host, Annie, and you are listening to Diary of a Former Addict. Okay, I, I didn't. I didn't see the talk. <laughs> the this is just going to be our cold open. This is it. This is what we're going to do. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> All right, ready? Hello and welcome. I am your host, Alan. And I'm also your host, Annie. And you are listening to Diary of a Former Addict. Is that better? That's much That's better. better. Yes, much better. Okay, cool. I didn't actually record anything, and I don't know where it went, so I couldn't find it. But this is better. We're not echoing. So That's good. Right, exactly. Um, how has your week been? <laughs> it's been a shit show. How's the year's been? <laughs> same. Very much the same. Ugh. Addicts and gay people, I'm telling you, they're the absolute worst people in the world. No, I love my clients. And I love them. <laughs> uh, more power. I mean, I don't mind addicts as much as I mind gay people. <laughs> <laughs> as a gay man. All right. So should we go ahead and just do this cold open real quick? Okay, we can do that. All right. Are you, are you gonna do all of it? No, you have a line there. Where? You say, and I'm also your host, Annie. Where does it say that? I say hello and welcome. I am your host, Alan. Then you say, and I'm also your host, Annie. And you are listening to Diary of a Former Addict. Okay, I, I didn't, I didn't see the talk. <laughs> this is just going to be our cold open. This is it. This is what we're going to do. Okay, okay, okay. All right, ready? Hello and welcome. I am your host, Alan. And I'm also your host, Annie. And you are listening to Diary of a Former Addict. Yeah, once we're an addict, we're always, always an addict. <laughs> right. I mean, it doesn't change. Right. Uh, you know what? Let's just get to the banter, because we're already okay. there. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Diary of a Former Addict. I am one of your hosts, Alan. And I'm Annie. Perfect. And we have been friends for nearly, can you believe it, like almost 14 years? Oh, my gosh. Wow. Right? Yeah, <laughs> think about it. It was like 2007 2008. 2008 yeah <laughs> so it's crazy that is I can't crazy. believe it's, it's a long time I can't believe it's been that long I know but oh I'm happy to so, have been for that long <laughs> right so um I'll just explain so diary of a former addict is a brainchild of mine um and I recently started a blog that's attached to this podcast so check out the blog um Annie and I are going to talk weekly about certain topics that pertain to the recovery experience We'll both be providing not only the addict's point of view, but also Annie's going to be here to provide us with the like psychological medical side of things because she is a counselor. Not licensed well, yet. Well, <laughs> not licensed yet, but she has more education than I do. So, <laughs> <laughs> Lots of experience um, in the counseling world. Right. So we will be talking on this podcast, of course, about recovery. Um, and we'll be talking about things that may trigger the audience I, please know that's not our intentions we're not going to be here to romanticize our past um but to talk about different ways 
that we have gotten through our disease, how we are managing our lives today and sobriety, um, besides just going to the meetings and sitting in the rooms and doing the step work, there's a whole other life, a whole other side of recovery that we're gonna we're talk about. And today for our first episode, we're going to be talking about stigma, the stigma of the addict. So I guess when you think about stigma, you think about maybe judgment. So when you're looking at an addict, I mean, I don't know how you've seen it, but from my point of view and seeing it with working with uh, people with substance use disorder, um, stigma can cause a lot of stuff to happen that's negative for them. Oh, yeah, for sure. When you look at it from their point of view, I mean, I just actually had a group about this and they were saying that stigma a lot happens in hospitals settings. Mm -hmm. And they'll go and they need help and they need that emergency help. And once it's found out that they're an addict, they get treated completely differently. Completely different, completely different. And I can testify to this um, hands down. I have three actually very um, prominent hospital experiences that sort of shaped the reason why I I didn't seek medical attention and medical help um, towards the end before going into treatment. So so my first experience when the e- in the ER was that I, um, a friend had done a um, friend that did a welfare check on me and they took me to the emergency room because I thought I was overdosing. So once they found out that I was an addict, it was like needles were shoved into my arms. I was barely seen by medical professionals and I was released and just like left to walk out of the hospital. And I showed up in a pair of leggings, a t-shirt and a pair of Toms. Oh like. I didn't have a coat. I didn't have anything. And it was in the middle of the winter and I had to figure out my way home. So that like right out the door, right? (laughs) Yep. Just walked right out the door. Yeah. Um, the second time I went, um, that was actually the time when I had was diagnosed with hepatitis. Um, I was so sick and I told my roommate to call 911 and he did. And the ambulance came pick me up. The ambulance people, hands down, the ambulance people are the nicest experience that I've had when it comes to any sort of medical condition relating to drugs. They've all been super nice and super caring and, you know, just wanted to make sure they got me to where I needed to be safely. Well, once I got to the hospital, again, same situation. They knew I was an addict because it was in my, in my record. My roommate also told the uh, EMS workers as we were leaving the house that I was four days sober at this point. So they related that to the medical team at the hospital. Well, it wasn't until they found out that I was actually sick when they did the test and found out I had hepatitis and I was trans the plate, the liver unit, whatever that's called. I can't remember. I don't um, remember that either. <laughs> so it's fine. But um, when I was sent there, then like they were actually caring and, and wanted to take care of me. Um, but the whole time that I was there, the doctors and nurses were expecting me to like leave the hospital and go do drugs, which I had no intention of doing that. So from their past experiences with addicts, they, you know, project that onto myself as well. Right, exactly. And I thought I was having a liver attack. Like I thought my liver was ready to jump out of my body and just walk itself out of my my room and go live its little liver life somewhere else. Um, But when I got there, again, the same situation from the first experience. As soon as they found out I was an addict, I was, you know, shoved with needles. I was left unattended. I was given a prescription, didn't even know I had a prescription because they never told me. Yeah, they don't even explain it to you. No, the same situation though. I was left to just walk out of the hospital. And in that situation, again, I was with, I was wearing like, you know, pajama pants. I had Tom's on, I had a leather jacket and it was winter again. 
And so I had to walk because then I couldn't find anybody to come pick me up. So the time when I actually did need to go to the hospital, I didn't go. And that was when I overdosed. Um, I did heroin for the first time and I was out, took two Narcans to bring me back. And I should have gone to the hospital, but I didn't because of my past experiences and because I was so disoriented, I didn't even know what happened. Right. Like I hadn't processed what had happened yet. And I was so afraid of being judged for my drug use. Mm-hmm. And that um, becomes really dangerous because if you have paid, you know, and you didn't go, right. point, you know, right. you could have died. Exactly. But, and that's like, because there's so many lingering effects after overdosing that I wasn't even aware of. Right. Exactly. Um, you know, just because you're awake doesn't mean you're in the clear. Like I went home and went to bed, which was the worst thing apparently you should do. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but like, so I did some research on stigma because I found it very interesting, mm-hmm. um, the facts. Um, so first of all, the World Health Organization classifies stigma as a, as a public health issue. Definitely. Like the, the World Health Organization, the people who say like the world is sick, says that it's a public health issue because it does, it's not just about addicts. It's about people with oh, no, mental you're health, right. exactly. people who have been incarcerated, people who have... Um, yeah, I could tell you, you a story HIV, about cancer. Yeah, go ahead. The mental mental health and um, addiction. If you put the two together, I mean, I was working mm-hmm. in an inner city in Ohio in Akron, and right. the place that I was working at, we serviced a lot of homeless people. Um, obviously, um, they would come in to see us. They'd see the doctor. We had a psychiatrist there, but there were a lot of people that came in that also had addiction issues, and. Right the doctor would see just the mental health side of it and not really realizing that it might be a psychosis from the drug use. So Mm -hmm. I had clients that were taking like, or actually ordered by the judge to have um, these psychotropic medications injected into them monthly for care, but there was no, there was no real diagnosis of an addiction problem. It was just, they thought that they were schizoaffective. Right. Because of the psychosis and how dangerous is that? Right. And that's what I mean. And a lot of people who like myself, I didn't tell my medical doctor, my personal like my PCP about my addiction problems until much later into my addiction, because I didn't want to get judged. But then I'm putting, you know, they're putting me on these like antidepressants, and they're putting me on all these drugs that kind of counteract what the drugs are doing. Chemistry in my brain was just crazy. Right. Um, exactly. And there's so much ignorance, like even in the health field, and it's it's really surprising. There's so much ignorance that that comes with like what addiction really is. Right. And like I try yeah. to put myself in the shoes of everybody that I have experienced, especially now in recovery. I'm doing a lot of retrospective thinking, and I can't be entirely mad at the medical field as a whole, no. because I have experienced a lot of really good doctors. Mm-hmm. And I, I've had a lot of really good doctors work on my conditions, but I can't be mad at, at these nurses and stuff because they have a lack of education, you know, and especially during COVID. I mean, a lot of my things happened during COVID mm-hmm. and these nurses were just to the bone. Yeah, and, definitely. you know, granted, even though I'm an addict, it doesn't give you the right to treat me less with less respect. No. And when does um, it come to the point where they are educated enough to know that that's not how you treat people? And right. also that they know the nuances of what addiction is and where it comes from. I right. think the biggest stigma that comes with addiction is that people just think it's a moral weakness. That right. it, it comes from, you know, making bad choices or, 
you 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 did this to yourself kind of thing dormant in us until it awakens we can't help it right and that's you know, the difference between an addict's brain and someone who's not an addict right people don't get that that you can be born with that I mean, there have been, I think they said that nearly um, 21.5 million people around the globe suffer from addiction. Right. And only like 2.5 million of them seek help. Yeah. And like, that's, that's great. That's a huge gap. That's a huge mm-hmm. gap. And the, the thing is, and what contributes to this is that, you know, there's this idea of what an addict is, what an addict looks like, exactly. what an addict acts like. And yes, addict mentality there are those that are on drugs that they will abuse the medical system to keep getting high. But right. it's not that person that's doing it. It's the disease that's making them do it. Exactly. And that's it the, the hard part that people don't understand. Right. Because it affects yeah. your brain in places right. that other people don't realize. So your frontal lobe of your brain, just to get a little science-y, mm-hmm. your frontal lobe of your brain is where the information goes into first, Right. It's right. what, what channels our fight or flight. So there's no impulse control with, with drug use. If, you're, if you have substance use disorder, you literally lose your impulse control because right. that's damaged by the use and the chemicals, the chemical reactions in your brain, the chemical. Right. And then you've got your limbic system, which is where all the pleasure is in those surrounding areas. So that's all messed up too. And every time you take the drug, you you mess up those chemicals more. People don't realize the chemicals that actually run your happiness. They run your um your pleasure. They run your ability to control yourself. Right, and I mean that's that was you know learning the science behind the addiction makes me feel less like a like just an addict. Do you know what I mean? Like it makes me feel. I've even had like, it makes me feel like less of a failure because I kept thinking right. my family was telling me they kept saying right. to me I'm I'm just a failure or I'm good for nothing or I'm just, you know, right. I make the wrong choices. And that's, that's why like, it's really important that family actually gets educated about what addiction really mm-hmm. is. Because if you right. lose I mean, support. Right. And I was lucky with my family. My family did do the research and, and did, you know, learn about my addiction and learn about the timeline of the withdrawal symptoms and, and the, the things that I would be going through that they would, you know, have to experience like my, my flight or flight, flight yes. or fright, flight or <laughs> response. I mean, when I was in treatment, I think I spent, the, <laughs> I spent like the first four days of treatment trying to get the fuck out of there. Like, oh, and that's what everybody did not want to be there. Under treatment. It wasn't you know, just and, <laughs> right. And like, that's the thing too, is that addicts, what people don't, see when they see an addict is they don't see or realize that that person had a life before the drugs exactly you know and and not everybody's life was peachy keen but like my life I had a house I had a a career I had a marriage I had a had two dogs I you know I had all Mm -hmm. these things that people are supposed to have and when you look at that that life you would not look at the addict that I became or think that person would would be but even in my active addiction Go ahead. Wait, and you what? have a master's degree. Right. Yeah. And I have a master's degree. Like I, 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 I am an educated person. Right. And so I always felt like garbage in, in the hospital or, or in any time I would have to go to a doctor's office because 
I felt like they were just degrading me down. Yeah. But really, I mean, and, and I'm not saying that I'm a better addict than any other addict, or I'm better at recovery than anybody else. No, there's because no we all thing. go about it our same. There is no such thing. But it made me mad because, you know, I was, I would go to a, a doctor who was specializing in, you know, LGBTQI issues. And, and I felt like I was still looked down on because of my addiction, even though I didn't want to be an addict. Right. I didn't want to keep doing the drugs. <laughs> I didn't want to do all these things, but. Well, it's like I, you said before, it's not like I woke up one morning and was like, oh, I think I'd like to be an addict. Right. right. <laughs> Nobody wakes up and says, oh, you know, I'm going to try meth today. That sounds like right. a great idea. I'm exactly. a little sluggish. I need a good pick me up. No, that would be a terrible idea. Don't do it, kids. Do not do it. Yeah. You know, and like, it's just. It just it, it upsets me because even, you know, you and I are both from a very small town. Yeah. And we grew up in small towns and we grew up in church and we grew up, you know, knowing that these things were wrong. But well, the first time I did did meth, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, right. they but used you know, a slang term. You have anything. If you have an addict's brain, the first time you try anything, your brain reacts differently than someone else who is not an addict. So right. you take that substance and you're like, oh, man, you know, right. and the person that doesn't have the addict brain or isn't born with those tendencies, they'll take it. And it's like, oh, God, no, you know, yeah. with my own addiction, like with opioids, um, you know, I've had people tell me, oh, God, I can't stand taking Vicodin or I can't stand I can't stand right. that. You know, they, they feel sick. They feel nauseated. And for me, it was completely different. It was mm -hmm. like, oh, wow, you know, yeah. And so even as an addict, I hated doing uh, like opiates or downers. I was always a stimulant, up, 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 up kind of person. Mm -hmm. So we're all wired different, even as addicts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And that's that's the thing too. I hate whenever people lump addicts all together in one in one category. You know, like, like you use everything. <laughs> right. Right. Like you know, I, I was like, no, I'm very particular. Actually, there are categories of drug addicts. There yeah. are your stimulant users. But the stimulant users can be broken down into coke and and meth. Like people who do coke will never touch meth. Right. M meanwhile, their their coke is probably laced with meth anyways. Yeah. Oh, but <laughs> to talk to but, about another time. <laughs> you know, yeah, and like and and weed users don't associate with any other drug users, and and alcoholics they like their their drink and that's it. And <laughs> it's like and opioids and, and heroin they're all in their own category. But the thing is ladies and gentlemen, and I'm here to tell you this, we're all taking fentanyl, so just calm the fuck down. <laughs> like, oh gosh, yeah. stop doing it. Like, it's fentanyl's in everything. It. Just stop doing yeah. it. I don't think um, people realize that even their weed could be laced with fentanyl. Right, right. It's it's so scary a world when it comes to drugs and when it comes to, to seeking um, help because mm -hmm. addicts don't want to be addicts, at least at a point they come to the, this moment where they say, you know, enough is enough. I can't keep living this way. Um, Alan, I've even had people tell me, like, I kept ripping and running and I kept thinking, well, I still want to do this up until the moment I needed to go find help. Right. And then I didn't want to be an addict anymore because it was mortifying. I right. was ashamed. I had guilt over it. Right. And you the know? shame and the guilt is, is something that's brought on by the stigma of, of the public. You know, but in a way, it's 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 almost necessary because we do need to feel that shame and that guilt to be able to get us into treatment. But at the same time, there are so many people who who do it under the radar, mm -hmm. who you wouldn't even know was an addict, right. really suffering and really hurting, and it's probably going to die early in their life. 
because we can't come to a conscious public decision to say these people need help and we need to stop judging them. Right. And you know, the other thing that comes with the stigma is people think that they just need to put you in, I don't want to say a cage, but they, it's like they take yeah. an addict and they put them in this really structured facility, which I mm-hmm. get, you need to have structure. Right. But a lot of places where people go, I hear all these horror stories about, you know, they just need really tough love and like they're, they're, they're not treated like humans. Stigma in the criminal justice system. Oh man, yes. I mean, that was one of the things too that they said like the judicial system and the healthcare industry are the two worst, the largest stigma. They keep because they think in jail for using drugs right. instead of actually getting them the real help that they need. Right. So they go so, into jail and they're sober, sober. They're just strictly right. sober. And there is a difference between sobriety and recovery. Right. And they might be there for six months, never had a thing, but when they get out, they're still addicted. Oh yeah. They're and not in recovery. And if you think that going to jail is going to help somebody get over their addiction, you're wrong because the drugs are in the jails. Right. And they're being brought in by the people that are supposed to be there to protect them. Exactly. Which, that's a whole other topic as well. Yes. But <laughs> the thing is, is that like, you know, the, the judges see these people and they don't see it as a medical issue. They see it as a moral weakness or a flawed character. Like, are this way because somebody made them that way or because they have a moral defect. But that's not true either. I mean, like I said, you and I grew up in a church. Yeah. You know, yeah. our moral character was pretty, pretty solid, I feel. Yeah, and I have two parents that have great moral character. <laughs> right, and so do I. I mean, my parents are, are wonderful. My parents, you know, I my family has addiction problems. I mean, I come from a long line of alcoholics, functioning or non-functioning, but either way, I mean, an alcoholic's an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. But, um, but like I was never like beat as a child. I was never, right. you know, I, I, I grew up with pretty much all the privileges that were afforded to me being a gay man out in the country, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, I have my, my trauma, but you know, someone would look at my life and think, Oh my God, I would never have guessed, mm-hmm. you know, I almost prided myself on that at, at one point in my addiction. I was like, I'm, I'm fooling everybody you know, at one point. Oh man, I felt like I did. <laughs> you know, and then you, and then you get into recovery and you find out, girl, you weren't fooling nobody. Like, <laughs> oh, and like, they tell no. you, yeah, I mean, if you have a good group and you have a good support system, you definitely get told. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and I, 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 I realized that I had really nobody fooled, but I also did things like I tried to be a normal person during the day. So like, I would go out and I'd go grocery shopping or I'd go and, and do errands and do adult things. And then the drugs were like my reward. And like, I, I even said one time that, um, that I didn't want to stop using drugs because it, like I was never in trouble. I never got in trouble with the police. I never got in trouble with, um, you know, my, whatever, my group, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I usually always stayed home on the occasions that I would travel out of town, but like, I didn't realize what I was doing though was isolating myself because I couldn't take the public eye anymore. I couldn't take the looks from people in the store. I couldn't take the lack of caring that people attacked me. I mean, like I became, I became somebody that people followed around in stores because they were afraid I was going to steal stuff. Like that's, that's the kind of stigma that really, isolated me and kept me from wanting to go out and going into treatment 
Right, exactly. Um, and the thing is, like, I never really stole anything. I mean, okay. <laughs> I had, you, you know, you're survival of the fittest at some points in life. But, right, right. like, I never felt good about it. No. And I always tried to make up for it if I could. You have to think about, too, you, weren't, you didn't have complete control of your impulses. No, I didn't. Um, and, I, and I can't blame everything on the drugs either, you know? And that's something that we have to realize, too, as addicts, is we can't blame the drugs for everything that we did in our past. No, because you, I mean, you can't, but you also need to not blame yourself for every little thing and then right. not forgive yourself. Because if you stay stuck in that, you're not going to recover. Right, right. And, and I have come to a point, and, and I do um, promise all the people out there suffering um, with addiction and, and those who are in recovery and those who are in treatment, that it does get easier. I mean, I'm still in my infancy. I, I reach 60 days next week. Mm-hmm. And I'm super proud of that. That's the longest I've been sober ever. Congratulations. Um, thank you. But <laughs> I'm finding that they're right. When they say go to meetings, talk about it, you know, write about it, they're right. So just listen to those who actually care for you. Absolutely. Um, and and they are educated and don't, they're not ignorant to get caught up in the stigma of it. Right. There's so, so many resources out there for people who are working in these industries or, or people who don't have an understanding of addiction that they really need to start just um, listening to, or even just read the basic text or read the big book. Or, or you know, Google, what is addiction? Right. <laughs> Something. Right, or listen to podcasts. Listen, listen to um, Diary of a Former uh, Addict, uh, where you can find podcasts. But there's a lot of podcasts out there. I mean, and a lot of them are like 40 minutes. You can put that on in the car on your way home. Like, just educate yourself about what these people are doing to make their lives better. What it was like for them before, mm-hmm. um, because I can tell you, I lived through hell. Yeah. Um, on the outside, it may have looked desirable to some people. Because I did travel a lot. I met a lot of really cool people. I, I, you know, saw a lot of really cool places. But really, I can't tell you a single fucking thing about those cities. Right. Except what motel to stay at. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, absolutely. that's the thing is that, like, I was, I was living a life of, in suitcases, going from motel to motel to house to house to motel. Like, I never really felt grounded. And that's what needs to happen, too, in addiction is, is that you need to ground yourself first before you can let anything else happen. But that's also another topic for another time because the stigma of like, I mean, when you think about it though, like it just kills me that people, I get um, a lot of compliments and and I got a lot of comments even in rehab that people were like, oh my God, your teeth are so nice. Yeah. I'm like, thank you. And they're like, they're like, how did you, how do you have all your teeth? I'm like, well, I still brushed them. Like I still took care of them, Mm -hmm. but like, they're like, they're just so white. Right. And somebody else gave me a comment the other day, actually, they said like, how did you get out before like the teeth and the skin and everything started to go? I'm like, well, I, I don't know. I guess I just got lucky. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know how to tell you that, but like, that's what people think of when they think of addicts. They think of people missing their teeth, people Being with homeless. lesions on their skin, homeless, smelling, like their hair is thinning. I mean, my hair was pretty much falling out. But the truth like, of it is, is they, the people who are addicted to whatever are mothers their grandmothers, right. their fathers, their grandfathers. Right. They have doctorate degrees. There are PhDs and MDs both mm-hmm. that are a part of this community. Oh, there's there's a lot of MDs that I met in my travels who are partiers. And it's like, it's like, for what? 
And then they're the same ones who are, you know, turning around and judging others, almost like they're projecting themselves onto these people. But right. it's sad. It's just sad. Like okay. I, I and, and addicts become so defensive, too, because of the way we were treated right. in treatment. I saw so many like just retaliating against the doctors and the nurses and the counselors. And it, it, it's because they're going in already fighting. Oh, yeah, I mean? exactly. And if you're working in that field, you should be very aware of that. Right. And not yeah. that, um, you know, offend you. If you're offended by that, you're working with someone who, is, who has substance use disorder, you probably should find another job. We're very fragile. Addicts are very fragile people. Yeah, volatile. At the, you know, we're, we're fragile. We fight. We get angry easily, but we are broken. And so every single time that somebody says, oh, they're just an addict or, oh, um, just let them get out of here or they're just here for a fix or whatever, mm -hmm. we internalize that. We yeah. never forget that. You know, that, that nurse or doctor or, or judge or PO or whatever, they'll never remember that person. No. You know, but we will remember them mm -hmm. for a very long time. I just watched a really good movie it's called Four Good Days. Um, it stars Mila Kunis and mm -hmm. Glenn Close. Uh, it's so good. But yeah. what I loved about it is at the moment, she's, she's talking to this, this school of, of high schoolers, this, this class of high schoolers. And she, one of the girls says, well, I just wouldn't let myself get that way. Mm -hmm. That right there sums up an addict. When she says, well, I wake up every morning saying, I'm not going to let myself get high. I'm not going to let myself do this. I'm not going to let myself do that is that those medical professionals who say, I don't understand how you can just let yourself get like this. It's not up to us as addicts at that point. You know, we have, we have put our entire lives in the hands of this addiction now. Right. And, and it, it's control. steering for us. There right? is no control. I mean, even, you know, we lose all power and in, in the 12 steps, the very first step is that we admit we're powerless, you know? Right. Right. And that's, that's a hard thing for a lot of addicts and a lot of people to, to come to. Right. Um, I really think everybody in the world at some point should do two things. One, they should work in the service industry. <laughs> yeah. And two, they should go through the 12 steps because the 12 steps aren't just a guide for addicts to live better lives. That's They're steps life. for everybody yes. to live a better life. And even if, even if these, these people who don't understand addiction were to just read those 12 steps and understand them, and, and I live in a city now that, that is known for its recovery. I don't feel that stigma here, which is wonderful because here there's so many addicts that come here for, for the recovery and for their health and for their, their chance of a better life. I've been very open about my, my reasons for living here. Very positive and wonderful responses from those that I interact with about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just have to say, I mean, I think... If I had come here before I went to treatment, I probably wouldn't be as open about it. Right. Because I would still have those past micro traumas, I guess is what I would call those. Right, right. It just, it made me so sad <clears throat> those days that I had to leave the hospital by myself and, you know, calling people to come help me and nobody would come help. And I understand that at some point people stop caring because you've called wolf so many or cried wolf so many times. But honestly, I never sought help for my addiction unless I was high. Right. Because when I was sober, I thought I was fine. Cut to six hours later and I'm getting high. 
it was just sad. It was one of the saddest moments of my life. Some of the saddest moments of my life. I've never felt more alone than I did at those times. Right. And again, as an addict, we internalize those moments. Absolutely. But they happen think, too often. Alan, they, they, they do. They, um, you know, was, I've been showing like little TED Talks and stuff at work. There's a British journalist named Johan Hari. And I don't know if you've heard about him, but he does a TED Talk actually on addiction. He's got a lot of loved ones in his life that have been through addiction. And his big thing that he says is the, the opposite of addiction or the opposite of, of so, addiction. It's not sobriety. It's actually human connection. It is. I agree. He says our laws are built around the belief that um, drug addicts need to be punished to stop them. But if pain and trauma and isolation cause addiction, then inflicting more pain and trauma and isolation is not going to solve the addiction. No. It's actually going to deepen it. And he right. went on to say in the talk, you know, it's not even about your family leaving your side. Like the disconnection has to happen sometimes because of boundary issues, right? And we learn that right. in recovery too. But you don't stop loving the person. And the biggest no, and thing we can have as humans is love. So we don't we don't need to punish addicts. We need to love them. I agree. When my parents told me no, I couldn't come home until I got help. That was just them helping me. And that was them showing their love for me because they couldn't love me any more than they already did. That was right. going to fix my problem. Right. They you could sit back and hope that you would love yourself as much as they love you. Right. And you know what? I, you know what? You know what I realized in rehab? What? And I'm going to brag about this because it is a great <laughs> feeling. And when you get there as a former addict or as a person in recovery, it's, a, it's, a, it's amazing. But I love myself. Yep. I love myself now. And that is a great feeling. Yeah. But a I, it's a great moment watching a, a client do that too. That aha moment or that light comes on. It's just, it's right. so phenomenal. When you can look in the mirror and you said, I, you say, I love myself and I forgive myself for everything that I've done to myself. It's huge. It's, it's a huge weight off of your shoulders. It's mm -hmm. a very cleansing moment. I, I, I just, I really wish that in, in this world today that, that people would just take the time to understand the addiction and yeah. understand that everybody has something that they're addicted to. Truth. That's, that's my, my, my philosophy, because honestly, whether it's you're addicted to food, you use food to cope, or you use drugs to cope, or you use alcohol to cope, or you use binge watching Netflix to cope, or you use you know, whatever, you know, to cope, you're still coping with something that has become uncontrollable in mm -hmm. your life. Yeah. You know, and that's what an addict is. You know, we're not all heroin users. We're not all meth users or, or opioid users or pill poppers or, you know, no. And I mean, I've, I've ran the whole gambit when it comes to it. I've had a home. I had an apartment. I, I lost it. I was homeless. I have, you know, I rented a room. I, I got back on my feet a little bit and then COVID happened. And then like, I would travel to these cities with no plan and just hope for the kindness of strangers, you know, and nobody's really better than anybody else. Because you know what, the one thing that I learned in all of these, these travels and, and these people that I've met is all of our stories are very similar. Yes, exactly. And we all do yeah. have a connection. We just have to be open to connecting to it. Right. And, 
and we all tend to we we all get very defensive too whenever but like even even as addicts we're very proud yeah (laughs) and we don't want to admit when we need help and that's that's the whole thing of we don't want people to know the truth because we don't want to be labeled or classified or put into a stereotypical box right and nobody wants that because we're human and we should all be treated as such Let's be honest, you know, we're, we are no better than anybody else in this world, period, period. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you do. I don't care what you drive, how much money you make, whatever. At the core of being a human person, if your heart is not pure, if your heart is not giving and loving and, and, and understanding, you got nothing. Because you don't have the connections, you got nothing. Right. Right. And to be honest with you, I mean, it's like Shania Twain once said, that don't impress me much. (laughs) Now, like even looking back on it, I'm like, oh my gosh, I met, you know, producers in Hollywood and and blah, blah, blah. And I could have had this life, that life, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, because those lives would have been filled with more addiction, more heartbreak, more, more of a headache than anything else. I just wanted to be sober. You know, that's what it was. I just wanted to live a sober, simple life. And that's what all addicts really want at the end of the day. Right. And it's a fight. It's a struggle. It is because we, we feel that we can't get help. I mean, I, I personally, and I'm sure you too, I fought with getting help because at that point I had to admit to everybody that I knew that I was an addict. Right. I mean, we had a discussion last week and you know, for me, I just now told my parents that I had an issue with it. Mm-hmm. Um, my kids knew though, you know, Yeah. but the people in our community didn't know that. So I feel like maybe I haven't struggled like you have with that. Yeah. And it's, it's hard because once they know they automatically look at you differently. Right. And you know, they look at you differently because their tone of voice changes their demeanor changes, their body language changes. But if it's someone you have that true connection with that really always has loved you. Right. You know, know, be a little bit of uncomfortableness, but that doesn't mean they don't love you anymore. Right. And and those people that you have the connection with are the people that end up staying in your life after recovery. Exactly. And you find out in recovery how many people really weren't your friends for sure. Oh, girl, let me tell you what, listen. (laughs) I would, I would often talk my counselor into letting me use my phone to order stuff off of Amazon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Listen, oh <my> gosh. <laughs> I went to a really good retreatment center anyways, but anyways, I would look at my messages because I was like, oh, let's see if anybody texted me. Yep. I had so many text messages from people that knew I was going to rehab, asking me what I was doing, where I was, if I wanted to hang out. And I'm like, okay, so this tells me a couple things. One these people either didn't believe me that I was going to go to rehab. Two, these people didn't think I was going to make it through rehab. Mm-hmm. Or three, these people haven't talked to me in the last at least three months and therefore don't matter in my life. Right. You know, and that that was tough. I mean, there's a lot of people from my past that I've had to cut off or cut out. I have a couple friends that I do keep contact with from a distance just right. to check in to make sure they're okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I'm not planning on going out and hanging out with them because that, that I know that would mean instant relapse for myself. Right. But I just like to check in to make sure they're okay because these are people who who cared for me 
when I was at my lowest and, and I cared for them at their lowest, you know? Yeah. Um, you can't overlook that. Right. And that's, that's lot- where that human connection comes in. Right. And that's, that's key. And that's, we kind of got a little off topic of st- a stigma, but we're still on it kind of. Yeah, we are because <laughs> literally you lose that connection when you think about right. it with the stigma. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the, the whole gist of it from what I said about what he said about connection is like, we, we forget as human beings to be connected enough right. to see another person suffering and treat them like total whatever, because they have this addiction. Um, right. you know, addict and addiction aren't used widely anymore in um, the counseling profession. It's substance use disorder. But when you think right. that way, it actually turns it into what people should be seeing it as. Right, which is a mental or a health yeah. issue. Yeah, and there've actually been studies where, um, you know, they would bring people in and they would have two different subjects. And maybe there's like 250 people that um, would look at the first subject and 250 people that looked at the second subject. The first subject, they called them drug addict. The second one, they said an individual with substance use disorder. Okay. Which one do you think got treated more fairly? The substance use disorder. Exactly. So there's a stigma in itself. Right. And that's, that's sad. That's, the language matters. It does. And I think, and words, words are so important. And that was something that they taught us a lot in treatment was to choose your words wisely and to speak with intent because you know, they say sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Words will fucking kill you. Are you? Yeah, and they have to. You know? Yes. And that's what these doctors, well, and I hate to classify just doctors because it's the general public itself. You know, we know that there is an issue in, in the healthcare field. We know that there's an issue in the judicial system, but in public itself, in the public world, in the public eyes, we don't realize how much words affect us as human people, but how much we affect others with our words. Mm-hmm. Junky, right. words like that. They come out constantly and it's like, no, <laughs> we right. have to teach the world a different language. It's like the universal, it's like the one united, united thing that people can agree on is that, you know, drug addicts are bad and and we we need to punish them and we need to blah, blah, blah. But well, that goes back to like the whole war on drugs thing too, you right. know? That made it yeah. a huge stigma too. I mean, it oh, made for sure, it because they like, called it a war, right? And like, there's good soldiers and bad soldiers. Like, what? Mm-hmm. What? <laughs> right. Just like there's there's good cops and bad cops, and good doctors and bad doctors, and good judges and bad judges. Right. You know, but once you put this idea of a war into people's heads, it doesn't matter if they're good or bad. Right. They're going to go off of what they've been told, and it causes tension. It does. It and, really and, does. And, I said an ignorance as well. Oh, huge, huge ignorance. And, and like I said, too, I mean, I was fortunate. I've always said I've been fortunate to have the family that I have because, A, they were very accepting of my homosexuality, and, B, they have been troopers through this whole whole recovery process. Um, you know, I was on the phone with my mom today, I think, for, like, 45 minutes, talking mm-hmm. about nothing, but talking about everything, you know? Yeah. And, like... My family did the hard work, did just as much hard work as I did in learning about my addiction, learning about recovery, and learning about 
what life is going to be like afterwards, but also what my life was like during. Oh. You know, they've taken the time to understand where I came from, how I got there and where I came from. And I know we can't do that for every single interaction in the world. I know every doctor is not going to sit down and, and, and listen to your whole life story, even though you would love to tell that to them. Yeah. Because there's one thing about, about addicts that I know and alcoholics is we love to tell our stories. <laughs> and you should. We, right. Because we all came from this really dark place. And I think if more people understood that we didn't wake up one day and say, I'm going to be a drug addict, mm-hmm. that we came to these moments in our lives because we were weak, because we had been beat down, because we weren't comfortable talking about our problems before we started doing the drugs. Right. And then that comes down to a mental health issue. And exactly. that's when we need to de- destigmatize mental health as well, because it has, you know, right. there is a generation of people in this world that are still living that find that getting help is not an option. They find getting help as weak, even. Right. And, and you know, I had a client recently that actually told me that they had a myriad of problems in their own family. You know, there was there was addiction, there was mental health issues, but because they were the only one that went to get help, that person was looked at in the family as the person with a the problem. There's a there's a certain generation, and, and it would be about about your generation too, Annie, is, is that um that generation was told that, you know, you're less of a man if you go to a therapist. Yep. You're less of a father if you seek help for your mental issues or your problems. And then so they bottle it up and they keep it bottled up for years until they don't know how to deal with it. Yeah. Basically, don't be an asshole and get educated. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's basically the point of this 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 topic. Is stig- the stigma is don't be an asshole. Yeah. If you don't know, don't be ignorant. Right. Learn. Learn. And if you keep don't, yourself. know, then keep to yourself. Like. Right. Right. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. You know what I mean? That's what they taught us in kindergarten. Everything you. Right. Everything you we need. We all seem to have forgotten that. We all we all love to interject ourselves in other people's lives because we don't have to look at our own lives. Right. So just don't be an asshole. Be kind to people. Not every addict is trying to get a fix and not every, you know, alcoholic is trying to get a drink. We are all looking for for a way out. And sometimes, you know, we, we look to these medical professionals to get us out of our addiction. And sometimes we just find ourselves getting further into it because of it. Yeah. So, so when you see an addict, instead of judging them, think about how you could connect to them. I think that's a great note. I think people just need to stop being so goddamn ignorant. <laughs> get learned. Be nice to people. Right. Get learned it. Um, <laughs> get learned. <laughs> um, Little Northwestern no. PA for yins. <laughs> right. For yins. Yins all out there listening. All right, Annie. This was a pleasure talking to you. We will do it again next week. And it was nice to have all these people who have hopefully been listening to this podcast. And catch us next week for the second episode, which is going to be about something dealing with recovery because that's what this podcast is about have a good night bye everybody